This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. What is the elemental tetrad of game design? How can we use it to produce an ideal game experience? And how does your game's design influence your table's culture? I'm John Tanaka, and these are the questions we're pondering in this episode of Dragon Mind in the Clouds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind in the Clouds, the TTRPG podcast where we discover our best selves through gaming. To support this podcast, drop us a five-star review in your podcasting app of choice. It's a little thing that goes a long way. Today's episode is all about the Elemental Tetrad, a design concept presented in Jesse Shell's book, The Art of Game Design, a comprehensive textbook organized into 100 lenses of game design. If you're serious about being an excellent game master, I highly recommend giving it a read. Before we unpack the Elemental Tetrad, there's something we need to be clear on moving forward. As a TTRPG game master, you're also a game designer. Period. It's not a matter if you think a game master should be a game designer. By taking on the role, you are one, whether you admit it or not. From all of my research into what it means to be a game designer, as a game master, it's basically game design in real time. You're trying to come up with fun scenarios and encounters and designing an experience for your players. A lot of times, let's say you're having your party in a combat encounter and you realize the monster has multi-attack and it shouldn't. A lot of game masters are going to be looking at that and saying, maybe I should take away one of the attacks to balance everything out. That's a game design decision. Even if you choose to do nothing, and you're like, well, that's what the monster stat block is, the players made their own choices, that's still a game design decision. Because sometimes doing nothing is a choice unto itself. Again, whether we admit it or not. As Jesse Shell puts it in his book, the game is not the experience. The game enables the experience, but it is not the experience. The player and the game are real. The experience is imaginary, but game designers are judged by the quality of this imaginary thing because it is the reason people play games. Sound familiar? Think about game mastering. Game masters are often judged by the quality of whatever the experience was. Shell continues, If we could, through some high-tech magic, create experiences for people directly with no underlying media, no game boards, no computers, no screens, we would do it. In a sense, this is the dream of artificial reality, to be able to create experiences that are in no way limited by the constraints of the medium that delivers the experiences. And just to pause for a second, in fact, for a lot of tables, this is their goal. The TTRPG community's overall dream is that of immersion. I mean, recently I've been looking through some of my older materials, like the 4th edition Dungeon Master's Guide, and one of the things that they say a few times is that there's no special effects budget for your imagination. 
And that's what draws a lot of people to D&D in the first place. We don't get direct sensation like Shell puts it, but what we do get is this communal imaginary experience that we all get to contribute to. All right, to continue with Shell's quote here, it is a beautiful dream, but only a dream. We cannot create experiences directly. For now, we live in the present where all we can do is create artifacts, rule sets, game boards, computer programs that are likely to create certain kinds of experiences when a player interacts with them. End of quote. And this is what I mean when I say that game masters, by the nature of their roles, are also game designers. Game masters have to make rules calls and judgments, interacting with the game artifacts to conjure an ideal experience for their table. In fact, a huge part of today's topic is also the design of peripheral elements that affect the experience. For example, if you're watching a movie in a theater with other people, the experience is going to be different than watching the same movie on your phone screen at home on the couch. All of these elements are part of the game's design and directly impacts the imaginary experience your table has. Now, game designers obviously can't account for things like your room setup, but you as the dungeon master can. So, if you're a game designer anyways, why not make those design decisions intentionally rather than accidentally? That's where the elemental tetrad comes in. It's a tool that helps us recognize the broad components of a game's design and how they relate to each other. The more we overtly recognize each of these elements, the more we can act to improve them. According to Shell, the elemental tetrad, the four design elements, are mechanics, story, aesthetics, and technology. Let's start with mechanics, which according to Shell, are the things that make a game a game. They are the procedures and rules of a game, describe the game's goal, and how a player can and cannot achieve it. This is one of the clearest ways where we can see how the GM is also a designer. Although some argue that the game is already quote-unquote designed by having a system, maybe a core rule book, the GM as the primary storyteller is also determining what the table's goals are and how the players can accomplish them. While they can use the established rules as reference, often GMs are creating this for themselves. There's huge design and narrative authority and freedom given to the GM in most TTRPGs, if not all of them. In fact, if you can think of a system that doesn't give design and narrative authority and freedom to a GM, please email us at dragonmindpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, the most iconic mechanic of TTRPGs is that players roll dice, the results of which are interpreted and narrated by the GM. The GM's interpretation is going to influence the table's culture, both subtly and overtly. For example, let's say a player rolls a 1 on a check in 5th edition D&D. If the GM narrates this as a character's incompetence, that shifts the table's culture in one direction. If they use it as a chance to come up with outside circumstances that interrupted a player character's attempts, that'll be another. Or if they instead say to the player, your character fails the check, why did that happen? That's a whole other possibility. Then again, sometimes the GM chooses not to use mechanics. Again, which is a design decision. For example, in a lot of my D&D games, I rarely use random die rolls 
in social interactions. Instead, that part of the game usually is an exchange of ideas and logical consequences, with die rolls being reserved for moments where the outcome is truly up in the air, or if I get stuck trying to figure out how the story should proceed. In my experience, having a social interaction resolve through a random die roll can invalidate a lot of the logic that a player may use in order to push the story forward. For example, let's say that the party is trying to convince a king to reinforce their borders because the evil necromancer's undead army is charging toward the capital city. If the players have sufficient evidence that this is happening, and if the king isn't completely incompetent, why would I be like, all right, well, you got to make a charisma check to see if the king believes you? Again, if I, as the designer, have established that there might be story reasons why the king might take some convincing, that's one thing. But there are so many times in social interactions where die rolls can be more disruptive than additive. Like I said, if the party has sufficient evidence and the king reasonably believes them, why not have the exchange be rooted in the role-playing and the interaction between me as the GM and the party, as opposed to disrupting things with a mechanical element that's unnecessary? Again, that doesn't mean I never use die rolls, but when the mechanics get in the way, that starts to disrupt the design of the experience. Which brings us to the second element. A game's story, according to Shell, is the sequence of events that unfolds in your game. Some games, like many video game RPGs, have linear stories that unfold the same way each time. Some instead have branching or emergent stories, which are ones that tend to be preferred by TTRPG players. For many tables, the story is the most important element of the ones we'll be discussing. However, to reiterate, it's not what makes the game a game. Many tables tell a story despite the game's mechanics. In a way, the example I just gave with the party trying to convince the king is an example of that. However, I've personally found that the game is most enjoyable when the mechanics serve to help generate the story, even though the story is what gives the game meaning. To reconcile those two almost paradoxical ideas, it's about knowing when to use the mechanics and when not to. Supporting the story and mechanics is the game's aesthetic, our third element, which according to Shell is a game's look, sound, smell, taste, and feel. This element has the most direct relationship to a player's experience and requires a technology that will not only allow the aesthetics to come through, but amplify and reinforce them. For video games, this would be the game's graphics, sound design, physical controls. For a board game, this would be like the board and the pieces. What's interesting is a lot of TTRPGs ignore this pillar entirely, depending on narrative descriptions in order to convey a game's atmosphere. From my time GMing, both casually and professionally, I found that little choices in aesthetics go a long way. One of the reasons I love running D&D through Roll20 is so that I can display artwork that captures the visual concept that I'm going for. For a lot of players, music is also incredibly immersive and helps set the emotional tone of a given scene. The thing that I zeroed in on with this description, though, is the feel of a game. 
Now, based on the context of this quote, I feel like what Shell was going for was kind of like the emotional tone and the feel of a game. So, for example, playing a film noir game is going to feel different than survival horror. That's also going to feel different than some bright mobile game like Candy Crush. However, one thing that I think is sometimes underprioritized is the feeling of the physical space that you're playing in. Just like how a movie is experienced differently in a theater versus a phone screen, games can be largely impacted by the environment you're playing them in. Playing on a white fold-out table in a fluorescent-lit local game store has a different feel than playing in somebody's living room, which also has a different feel than being squished into a small kitchen of somebody's apartment. For some groups, this element is hard to control. There's only so many places you can play. But rather than dismissing it as a design decision, first, let's recognize that it is an element, and maybe interesting solutions will reveal themselves to you. Putting that to the side for a second. Finally, the last element is technology, which Shell defines as the materials and interactions that make your game possible. For video games, this has to do with the machine it's designed for and the technical specs needed for it to run. TTRPG's relationship with technology is a very new thing to consider. Up until recently, at least from my perspective, the assumption was that games were primarily played in person with paper and pencil. Of course, the introduction of smartphones was a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it offered a new distraction, which keeps a lot of players disengaged from the game. On the other, though, we started getting things like online rules databases, like D&D Beyond for Dungeons & Dragons, or the Archives of Nethys for Pathfinder 2nd Edition, which makes checking rules details much faster and more streamlined. Even more so, virtual tabletops allow us to stay connected and keep a game going with friends all around the world, creating game possibilities that were just dreams even a few years ago. So the question is worth asking, what technology is appropriate for your gaming group, and how does it help or hinder the experience you want to deliver? Once you're clear on how these four elements present themselves in your game, the next step is to check in with the higher vision you have for the game you want to run. Do you want to run an immersive, meaningful narrative? Do you just want a beer and pretzels, kick down the door style dungeon crawl? Do you not know, and you just want to play with some things to figure out what you like and don't like? That's what the Elemental Tetrad is for. It's meant as a way to analyze the components of your game and find harmony between them. Let's use my latest D&D campaign as an example. Before I continue, please remember, this isn't to say do things my way or you're doing them wrong. Rather, my intention is to just demonstrate how being clear on your game's higher vision informs your intentioned design decisions with the elemental tetrad to produce an ideal imaginary experience. So quick backstory. When I first played on Roll20, it was because our group had no alternative. It was March of 2020. We thought that this was going to be a temporary thing. At first, I was frustrated by the new technology. Voices kept cutting out. Players were interrupting each other. The game's events were hard to keep track of. 
that was until I played a pickup game with Ian from Incendium RPGs. Ian's setup was simple yet profound. All he did was show a picture of concept art for a scene and typed his description of it in Roll20's chat. What was interesting was the game was much easier to keep track of because everything was documented. And because of that, it was easier for me to immerse in the story. While at the table, I found it a struggle to genuinely roleplay my character without it just ending up being me with a different name and class. When I got the chance to write out what my character was doing, all of a sudden it was easier to separate my personality from the characters. That first session was one of the best games I've ever played and transformed my GMing style and career moving forward. A shift in technology created new storytelling and aesthetic possibilities. I'd secretly always wanted a game where the players had an easy time immersing into their characters. For years, I'd try these aesthetics things, like implementing music and minis at the table. But some players found the music distracting, the speakers I brought were hard to set up, not everyone would have a good view of the battle map, and if you lost track of little details, it made it hard to make the ideal decisions in combat. More than anything, though, I just wanted a story they could remember. Again, secretly, it frustrated me when the table would forget specific details of the game, and our ability to tell a cohesive story was limited by the attention and materials we had at the table. Even if everyone took notes, those notes weren't perfect. They were biased impressions of a situation, and often failed to capture the magic of being at the table. None of this was anyone's fault. We just didn't have the technology to help craft our ideal game. Back to Roll20. With a virtual tabletop, the players that I GM'd for agreed to type their in-game actions into their text chat. This made the game story easier to keep track of. If the internet cut out, when a player finally fixed it, they could just update with all the things that had been going on. The story was easier to remember. If someone forgot something, they could just scroll back and find it. Mechanics were also clearer. By typing in a player's action economy, we could keep track of if they used their action movement bonus action. One of the ones that's hard to remember is reaction. And again, all you've got to do is scroll through that little chat to see what works. Like I said earlier too, our table found our ideal mode of aesthetics. First, when it comes to physical space, if everyone's at their own house, they're free to customize their space to their greatest level of comfort. To come back to the whole music thing, my mom has told me that music in a game tends to be distracting. In a virtual tabletop, she just shuts it off. Now Stephanie from Borrowing Brilliance told me it helps trigger a certain mood, and she finds it very helpful to know what the tone of a scene is by having a musical cue. And of course, like Ian, and how I mentioned earlier, I show concept art for exploration scenes and have accurate combat battle maps that make it clear for everyone to know what's going on at all times. And because of all these things, our stories are better, which again is why most people value TTRPGs. 
I will say not every player I've played with likes this approach. Some of them have said they missed at the table play. Their ideal experience is different from mine. Again, I'm not saying that this particular design is best for everyone. What it is, is an example of how being intentioned with the four elements and having them work in harmony produced the game I wanted to deliver. Like most people, what I valued most was the story. But rather than fighting against the real-world attention and communication mishaps of the table, we figured out how to utilize a technology that also unlocked our ability to best utilize aesthetics to support the story that we wanted. And because of that, the story is much more cohesive and meaningful. And the biggest change that happened when paying attention to the elemental tetrad is that it changed my table's culture. When I was playing in person, even at tables where all of the players agreed to serious role-playing, I never felt the same kind of immersion as I do running and playing games with Roll20. I can still have fun playing games in person, and they'll never be as immersive because of the limitation of our technology and ability to organize what's going on. And again, that's our way of immersing. It'd be really interesting to hear what everyone's definition is, but I've been at tables where the goal is to have a lighter, more social experience. In that case, Roll20 could reasonably just get in the way. Like I was mentioning earlier with the social interaction mechanics, that technology may be more disruptive than helpful. The feeling isn't the same if everyone isn't in the same room. So the design of that table's four elements and how they work together is just going to be different. Now, if culture is something you're interested in intentionally cultivating, first, I would look at the holistic design of your game. I think this is summed up by one of my favorite quotes from Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. It goes, There is a wonderful story of a group of American car executives who went to Japan to see a Japanese assembly line. At the end of the line, the doors were put on hinges, the same as in America. But something was missing. In the United States, a line worker would take a rubber mallet and tap the edges of the door to ensure that it fit perfectly. In Japan, that job didn't seem to exist. Confused, the American auto executives asked at what point they made sure the door fit perfectly. Their Japanese guide looked at them and smiled sheepishly. We make sure it fits when we design it. In the Japanese auto plant, they didn't examine the problem and accumulate data to figure out the best solution. They engineered the outcome they wanted from the beginning. If they didn't achieve their desired outcome, they understood it was because of a decision they made at the start of the process. So now I ask you this. What's your desired outcome for your game? How can you engineer that outcome through your game's design? Let us know by emailing us at dragonmindpodcast at gmail.com or letting us know in the Darkmoor Podcast community discord. This episode was inspired by Jesse Shell's book, The Art of Game Design, A Book of Lenses. I'm sure that we will cover more elements from that book in future episodes. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Dragonmind is a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more TTRPG content like this, visit darkmoorpodcasts.com. Our theme song 
J-Pop is brought to you by Fezlian Studios. You can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. Well, Grimton, Melinda and Ulrich are gone. We're in a new, unfamiliar land of Kolgafir. What's our first move? Polaris, I'm not too certain, but I did hear Fishbelly talking about something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the warlord's half-sister in a meeting. Yeah, that's about the only lead we have so far. We haven't been here long. Might be worth checking out. Seems like a plan to me. Join us as our party explores an unforgiving region of the cusp and allies with new party members in arc three of Advantage, a fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons audio drama focused on storytelling and character development in the Darkmoor Podcast Network. Find us in your podcast app.